Hello, welcome to the Naked Podcast or Naked at Noon. I'm your host, Jen Taylor. I would like to thank NGBN Carson City TV for hosting the Naked Podcaster. You can download the app and stream all their channels, especially the Naked Podcaster. Today, Erin Keem from The Happy Wardrobe combines her experience in TV film along with her realtor's background experience in marketing and style genius to help women who want to make an impact and earn more money via their image on camera and beyond. She is my personal endorsement today. I worked with Erin personally. I hired her as a style branding coach, which was a unique experience as the Naked Podcaster, but I do own clothing. So she was so phenomenal. I wasn't sure what it would be like, and it was so much more outstanding than I can even tell you. So for style branding, find Erin Keem. If you are looking for group coaching, one-on-one NLP coaching, or you want to have a super fun speaker join your conference, head over to my website, momof18.com. Get in touch with me. You can sign up for a 30-minute strategy session to determine if we're a great fit. And those are some of my favorites, the strategy sessions. I also have a lot of free information on the website. If it's if you're looking to start a podcast, I have a podcast had to, a free quiz on my landing page designed to reinvent, rediscover, remember what gives you purpose, passion, and drive. Say that fast three times. And my my book is free uh, um, also on the website. Today, I am super excited. I have Dom Einhorn with me. Dom, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, Jen. Pleasure really, meeting you all. I, you too. You are, it says here on right here that you are live from Sarla, Southwest France. I didn't mess that up too much, did I? No, that's correct. The ET is silent, indeed. Tell me about yourself. Um, you have, I mean, it's phenomenal. I almost don't know where to start with this. I'm gonna jump in with the Sarla rugby team. You own a rugby team. Yes, a strange set of circumstances. I I grew up somewhat with rugby as a fan of the French national team as a teenager. Uh, and then when I moved back to France from the US uh, two and a half years ago, my CPA was the president of the local rugby team. Uh, and by way of circumstances with COVID, I got more and more involved until eventually I ended up owning the team. I mean, I would like to own a rugby team. You had a goal with the rugby team. Now, uh, you purchased them before COVID hit. I would say the early stages of COVID, uh, okay. very early innings of COVID. Uh, the club was somewhat struggling. Uh, and I jumped in initially as a sponsor, later on as a minority investor, and eventually as the majority investor. And we're on a on a path of uh, quintupling revenues during COVID with no games being played. How, how did you do that? So the club's been around since 1903, 18 years old. And the best way I like to call this club usually is a 118 year old startup. <laughs> Because if you know anything about amateur sports, and maybe some of your listeners do, some of them don't, is that typically if you're looking at, we're, we're technically speaking, we're a semi-professional club. But when uh, I would really, really put hard brackets on that semi, because what you're seeing basically in a club that's that old 
is a lot of inefficiencies, uh, lack of consistency, uh, sponsorships coming in and out for a team, uh, the relative inability of people to think outside the box and outside of the region, and the combination of everything uh, that I just talked about. So what we did is we came in uh, being marketers by trade. We completely rebranded the team, brand new logo, brand new equipment, refreshing the brand, building a extravagant website in French, English, and Spanish because we have a lot of Argentinian players on the on the team, a brand new esports uh, franchise, a, an e-store with a lot of uh, merchandise, building new relationships with local sponsors, international sponsors, doing things, some of which had never been done before. And uh, I guess, you know, call it magic, but sometimes when you do things that were never done before, things just start happening. I'm a strong believer that uh, massive action turns into massive results if you stay consistent and if you're consistently putting the effort forward. And that's exactly what we're witnessing today. I love it. And you have, you have your um, Benji? Uh, Benji is my wife's brainchild. Ah, okay. So at some yeah, at some point in time, my wife said it's not normal that a soon-to-be professional rugby team doesn't have a mascot. Right. So the local emblem for the for the for the town of Sala is a salamander. So we basically built a massive blue salamander, blue blue and black being the colors of the team. And it's an absolute smash hit. That gives you an idea. I mean, in the US, most of you can relate to what a mascot looks like. But everybody locally here around the club thought, what is this? What are you trying to accomplish with this? Is it just wait and see? First thing we did is we went during Christmas time, took Benji to the local schools. And it was an absolute hoot. I mean, 100 kids jumping over Benji to the point where Benji, technically being a male, he did give birth to a little mini Benji. So we now have a little mini mascot, uh, Benji Jr., that sold out during pre-order uh, because we actually actually had a mold made and we actually had one toy made. And uh, now it's literally flying off the shelves before we even have them. Wow, that's incredible. So you breathe really, really new life into this rugby team. And it's a very diverse rugby team, too, because uh, technically speaking, and a French amateur rugby team is only allowed to have two foreign players on the play sheet. Okay. How, however, if a player has been, if a foreign player has been playing in France for five years or more, he is deemed a French player according to the license. So we are a very diverse team. We have players from the Fiji Islands, we have Tongan players, we have Argentinian players, etc. A, a Georgian prop, uh, you name it. Inside of Unicorn, we're roughly 30 people from hailing from 18 different nationalities and uh, you know, actually predominantly female versus male. Incredible. I want to switch now, and I don't know where you want to go first because I don't know how everything is connected, but you have the startupsupercup.com, and then you have the Unicorn Incubator. So talk about what those two are, how they're connected, or if they're connected. Yeah, so everything we do, the glue to everything that we do is Unicorn. So Unicorn with a Q, uh, my last name Einhorn means Unicorn in German. 
that's one reason. And also, as most of you know, a unicorn is typically a startup that ends up being valued at a billion dollars US or more. So it's kind of like usually a startupper's dream to actually build a unicorn, mm -hmm. which is an elusive animal, but I'm proof that it's not that elusive since I am a unicorn by name, by birth. So Unicorn is an incubator accelerator for technology startups. And in particular, we're actually looking at the Sarla team as one of our incubees, hmm. the same way a project like the Startup Super Cup is an incubee. What we do is we vet and we assess young startups and we give them a framework in which they can succeed. So instead of having a startup entrepreneur that typically would be working in this, out of his garage, nothing against that because some of the most successful brands were built in garages. At least that's what we're being told, you know, but this famous Silicon Valley garages that spun off uh, HP, Oracle, Google, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in many cases, it's actually not true if you really know the founders, but I guess it sounds good for PR when you say, look, we started in a 200 square foot garage and today we have 100,000 employees. But an incubator basically appeals to startups in a multiple of ways. Number one, it tells them you're not alone. As you're going through the maturation stage, you need help in order to grow, expand, and basically an incubator is what you would call an incubator in a hospital where the baby, maybe a premature baby, is not strong enough to survive. You put it in the incubator so that the survivability of that baby obviously is assured and that ultimately it will emerge coming out of the incubator and go into what we then call an accelerator. Mm -hmm. So incubation is very early stage for startups. We help startups set up shop. It's a turnkey process where they have access to legal attorneys, accounting, graphic designers, developers, marketing people, et cetera, et cetera, to actually take that concept from the infancy stage through a maturation process. If they graduate from that stage, they go into our accelerator, which is meant, as its name indicates, to accelerate the process of going to market and in particular, acquire more customers for the product or service. Then you have the Thrive program too. And I love on your website, under Incubate, you talk about how people can, you help people completely move to South France. You're in a small that town. Is. And I, I mean, it was phenomenal to read the information about it. I, it was really impressive. Do most people want to move there and work directly with you like that? The answer is no. So unequivocally, no. So if you took a hundred startup entrepreneurs, young startup entrepreneurs, and young can be anything. It can be 70 years old and be young of spirit, right? So I'm using that term loosely. If you asked a hundred of them, irregardless of where they currently are, New York, Los Angeles, London, Singapore, Tokyo, or even other larger cities of France, do you want to move to Sala France, which is a town of 9,000 souls in the winter with 3 million tourists, primarily in the summer season? Roughly 88% of them will tell you no. What interests me are the 12% remaining, mm -hmm. which if you size up the market is significant. Now, who are the people that are more likely to tell us yes versus than no? In my opinion, if you have a startup, a promising startup, and you know that you can go to a place where you're gonna get the level of support that we're providing you with, you should be willing to go to the moon. 
and within the next 10, 15 years to Mars, because there will be a lot of startups set up on Mars at some point in the future. What I'm saying is that if you have the real DNA of an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. You should be ready, pack your bags and go to where you're most likely to succeed. And I believe that our place is one of those places. Now, the fact that we are in a location like the south of France in a smaller town, we're not too far from Bordeaux, not too far from Toulouse, which are big cities, not too far from Paris either, is pretty indicative of your likelihood, at least for me, when I'm vetting you to succeed. If you're giving me excuses creative excuses as to why you should not be coming into one of the best incubators in the world and help you succeed, then probably me, because I'm a, a likely investor in your startup as well, I'm probably gonna say, maybe that's not the right target for me. Maybe that's not the right person I should be working with because if I'm giving him, if I'm handing him this opportunity on the platter and he says no, because I'd like, rather go rollerblading in Santa Monica, no problem, that's his prerogative right? Uh, I have no fuss about that. But at the same time, he's missing out on a huge opportunity. What we're seeing though, and keep in mind that we're starting, we started Unicorn way before COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, I say way, two years before. It seems mm -hmm. like an eternity in the tech space. But we already saw an early trend at that time in the spring of 2018, where people were just getting tired of working in large cities, fighting traffic, living in the smog, dealing with all of the inefficiencies that come with it, where we wanted to provide a tangible, concrete alternative with a brand new lifestyle where you can come to a place and you can live and you can work. So within a 25 mile radius of where I'm sitting today in Salah, there are 1,001 medieval castles. That's the exact oh. number. Right. So for those of you who have seen the movie Joanne of Arc, it was yeah. filmed in, in Salah. And when they filmed the movie, the only thing that they did take was take the cars out of the city and everything else stayed the same. When you walk into town, it's like walking into a fairy tale, like 12th century town. Nothing has changed since 12th century. So it's breathtaking. That's why we have 3 million tourists. But mm -hmm. if you like the outdoors, which a lot of entrepreneurs like too, river rafting, rock climbing, amazing hikes, you name it, we've got it all, waterfalls, right? All walking distance. In terms of quality of lifestyle, I have two engineers from Panama that used to work in my office in Panama, commuting three, four hours a day back and forth uh, from their home to the office. Now their walk to the office takes them five minutes on the way to the office to drop off their kids on their way home to pick them up and go back home. So there's a dramatic improvement, obviously, in quality of life that also translates to the performance at work, which is obviously, it's logical, right? If you're sitting in a bus for three hours trying to get to work or in a subway and then trying to do the same thing going home, it's not ideal for your creativity. I looked at your website at the incubator. Oh, I mean, I looked at a lot of it, but when I scrolled down, it says, move your startup to France. And I was like, huh, reason number one, I was like, okay, I'm moving. That's all. <laughs> I was, I was like, you're going to help me with school and that, like everything, everything, all the things I don't know how to do or understand. I thought, oh my gosh, I would do that in a second. So but you I mentioned school. Yeah. You mentioned yeah, school. Yeah. Inter yeah. Interesting point because I know you have a lot of kids. Yeah. So you mentioned school. So if you take, uh, so my, my two Panamanian, uh, employees, they have a combined five, five kids combined. 
okay. uh, between the ages of five and 12. Okay. Was their main concern, what's gonna happen because my kids have to go to school. In 24 hours unannounced, they were placed in school. Within six months, the youngest, the five-year-old, was speaking absolute impeccable fluent French, and she claimed that she was French and not Panamanian to everybody that she came across. So that's how quickly, obviously, kids are yeah. malleable, right? It's like yep. Play-Doh, uh, but that's how quickly they adjusted, and that's how quickly the French educational system embraced these kids and put them in school. At first, one of the ladies said, uh, well, let me see if I can bring him in next uh, next session, like in September, when school starts. And all we said, is said, no, they need to be, they need to be going now. Oh, okay, let me see what I can do. How about tomorrow? <laughs> and well, the next day they were in school. They were still jet lagged, they were already in school. There's, I don't know about other places in the country, but the US, especially at this point, in my opinion, is not doing a very good job at school. So. Uh, I would pull, I only have one daughter left in school, but I would pull her out in a second to bring her somewhere else. So it, it was just so phenomenal on your website to read everything that goes into you helping people get there and get settled. I mean, if they're willing, if they want to work with you and you're willing to back them and work with them and that part works fine, you've got it all laid out, the visa, school registration, like everything. And that yeah, was, so there's a, yeah. That yeah, was really phenomenal to me. There's a whole ecosystem that was put in place by the current French president, for those of you who know him, Emmanuel Macron, uh, was voted in office uh, a little over three years ago, and he's really made it a lot easier. He basically coined the term and called France the startup nation. Mm -hmm. And basically, the philosophy behind it was that central governments around the world have been trying to solve the problem the problems that affect them for hundreds of years without actually being successful at it because they took a bureaucratic approach to solving those problems. When in fact, what we should all be doing is we should rely on entrepreneurs who are basically naturally gifted. Their job is to solve problems, right? To tackle that problem. So basically what he did is he opened up all the problems that the government had identified to entrepreneurs and startups, no matter where they came from, making it very easy to immigrate to France with what's called a passport talent visa, visa, visa talent passeport in French, I'm translating it literally, that makes it easy for a startup to relocate and to bring in talent. That is incredible. That's incredible. You said earlier that the start Startup Super Cup was a part of the, inc the incubator's the main umbrella, and that's underneath it. What does that one do? So a Startup Super Cup is an actual event, mm -hmm. the first edition of which will be October 1, 2, 3, on the weekend, Friday through Saturday of 2021. And basically what we've done is we've, uh, we've invited a number of luminaries from the tech space, investors, et cetera, et cetera, and we will have, come October, a roughly a thousand people in one place over a three-day weekend. Uh, the makeup of those thousand people is roughly 800 accredited investors, angel investors, 80 funds, 20 angel networks, 100 plus media, including some name, major, major name brands, and 100 startups exhibiting 
and pitching to those investors over the three-day weekend, the winner taking home a massive unicorn carved by a world champion in, uh, in chainsaw, uh, chain, <laughs> chainsaw sculpture. So it's going to be a very unique sculpture that taken home, prize money, of course, as well, uh, including some incubation acceleration packages for, for the winners. Wow. Okay. Yes, I'd love to go. <laughs> so the idea the, the idea there is to basically demonstrate that you can launch a startup in a place like Sala mm -hmm. cheaper, more efficiently, uh, faster than pretty much anywhere else, given the right ecosystem, which we've set up for you. Uh, English saying is the pioneers take the arrows, the settlers take the gold. So we've okay. already taken all the arrows, but we also intend to stick around long enough to grab some of the gold, along with the startups who don't have to deal with the pain we went through in order to set it up. I have found in, I, I interview mostly entrepreneurs and I found very quickly that entrepreneur's goal is to take whatever your pain point might've been or what your uh, zone of genius is and turn around and basically give a lending hand to people to make it faster, easier, and more supported. And you are a huge example of that. So you're 100% right. So we're our DNA is to become an enabler, right? And the reason why I decided to launch Unicorn is very simple, because at some point for the majority of my professional life in my earlier years, I was a startup entrepreneur. Yeah. So I went through all of those pain points. I know exactly what they are. And then over the last six to eight years, I, I slowly morphed into more of an angel investor, assisting other startuppers with cash, helping them collect, uh, you know, basically build a network of investors, of strategic investors that have more than just money. You know, they can actually contribute talent, consulting, connections, client referrals, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where I realized that there's a huge demand in the marketplace because in reality, what you have is you have something that I call the expectation gap between the investor and the entrepreneur. And usually what I, the way I describe it is that the entrepreneur is listening to FM and the investor is listening to AM. Oh, all right. right. So there's a complete yeah. communication, complete communication breakdown there. That's very easy to spot. And because I've been on both sides of the table, I know where it's coming from. And I also believe I know how to resolve it. And that's part of what we're trying to do with Unicorn. Let's go back in time because I know that there's a massive story and you touched on that you had, you're a serial entrepreneur, I would say. You, yeah, I've had a few, a few you, successes and even more failures. Yes. Which is phenomenal. So let's jump back in your story. You're in France now. Is that where things started out? Jump back wherever you want. Yeah. Born in France in 1970. Oh, me so, too. Woohoo. Well, wait. So we're both dogs, according to the Chinese Zodiac. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right. I'll take it. So that's where it all started for me. I grew up with a very, very strong mentor, my maternal grandmother, who was a World War II resistant. Uh, I remember growing up, going through her house and uh, touching, I and mean, we're now talking in the 70s, early 80s, uh, memorabilia from American GIs because uh, 
northwest, northeast of France, the Alsace-Lorraine region was liberated in the spring of 1944. Uh, for those of you who are history buffs, you can look at the Battle of Hatten, H-A-T-T-E-N, which is roughly three miles away from uh, my grandma's house where my parents still live today. And I remember some very, very interesting stories uh, from my grandmother, for example, because she grew up in an era of scarcity where they literally had nothing and they were starving. There were 11 siblings, uh, seven of which got killed, including some stray bombs. So that tends to build character. And I remember, for example, taking a bath and my grandma would go take a bath in my water after I washed myself. So that's one thing that really I found where it's really strange, but that's how, that's how scarce water was during the war. And she like, continued to, to, live, to live like that with total dedication, total abnegation. Then she, she was an amazing cook and she would make these uh, tarte flambe, which are these uh, Alsatian pizzas. Matter of fact, if anyone wants the best startup tip, if you launch those damn things in the US, you'll make an absolute killing. You'll, you'll be a billionaire, trust me. All you have to do is sample it out and people will eat it forever. It's way better than a regular pizza. But she would roll these things up for us three brothers, feed us all, and once everybody was fed, everybody had eaten, she would sit down and eat a slice or two. But she would never eat before all the boys were fed, total dedication, et cetera, et cetera. So I grew up with a very, very strong uh, maternal grandmother figure. And I remember uh, my mom and my dad, who was still alive, but my mom, even as an adult, even at age 50, would ask grandma, what do you think? If grandma would say yes or no, she'd never double, she'd never second guess it. This was, this was it. If grandma has a feeling you're talking to the wrong person, I would recommend that you never talk to this person again and nobody second guessed it. And she was right. That's how strong her radar was. I got the chills over my body just thinking back about some episodes about uh, you know how I, how I grew up with her and how that really, really shaped me. Uh, but it was very, very powerful. And uh, I have a feeling that she's here today with us, right? And that's how I feel every single time. Wow, how incredible. You grew up, so th through three of you, three brothers, and there's something unique that I know about you growing up, and that is the languages. So... I am dying to know about this. Yeah, it's interesting because you'll, you'll find a lot of Alsatians, a lot of Swiss people that speak multiple languages fluently. It's not because they're smarter. It's uh, primarily because of a purely a set of circumstances. So we grew up three boys. I was the youngest of three and we would routinely speak uh, about the same topic in three or four languages around the dinner table, addressing on the same topic, one person in one language and continuing the conversation with another person in another language. So I'm talking Alsatian to my grandmother. I might be talking German to, to a visitor. I might be talking French to one of my uh, aunt's cousins uh, about the exact same topic, but simultaneously. So it's very good later on in life for multitasking. I can have 27 browser windows open. I know exactly where what is. But again, it's because I was wired this way. For us, it's completely normal, right? What's really, really, it's interesting because what's really odd, for example, is the dreams. Because some people can dream in color. I don't think I do. 
doesn't doesn't ring a bell, but I certainly dream in multiple languages. And when my mom speaks English to me in a dream, I wake I wake up immediately because I'm like, wait a second, mom doesn't speak English. It's really really ah. odd, right? So, <laughs> for those of you, for example, who are multilingual parents of young children, there's a lot of research behind that that proves that a child makes an emotional bond, obviously based on language, mm -hmm. and that the native speaker should always speak one in the same language to that child until the child reaches the age of six. So let's assume you're an American mother, the father is South American, and you have a little girl, she's just newborn. A lot of people in that situation, they don't know, what should we be speaking, right? Should we be speaking English? Should we be speaking Spanish? A little bit of both? No, what you need to do is the father, who is a native English speaker, only speaks English to the child and the mother only Spanish until the age of six. And then all the research indicates you have a perfect bilingual child that will learn a third, fourth, and fifth language like butter, like super easily later on because all of the neuronal connections in the brain are developing already pre-birth. It's, it's proven that in the womb of the mother, a lot of those synapses are already built because they're already here. So for example, there are startups in that space, coming back to the unicorn model, that specialize in pre-birth child development. And one of the startups has lullabies that they're playing for the kids while the kid is still in the womb. And the mothers will tell you when the Japanese lullaby comes up, the kid gets all agitated and it starts kicking because it's very, very high pitched. It's very, very, you know, it's very jovial, right? And when the Russian one comes up, it's pretty stern and everything stops. If you put the Japanese one on, the kid starts kicking again. The kid's not even born yet, right? So some very powerful things, you know, right there in terms of language acquisition and how they can actually shape the rest, the rest of our life. There's also a lot of research that shows that if you are bilingual, trilingual, quadrilingual or more, when you speak, so I'm speaking to you right now in English, which is not my mother language, it's a learned language, but I'm actually adopting a different personality by way of language. That's proven. If you actually took a brain scan of me right now speaking English and then turning around speaking to my wife in a different language or to anybody, French, German, Spanish, or whatever, different parts of the brain would light up and different connections would be made. So scientists have proven that we have multiple personalities that are based on language and that we are actually physically becoming a different person by way of speaking a different language. Wow, that's incredible. You were raised speaking four, and it was common. That was just how it was. So, but you speak six now, correct? Yes, uh, I, I say you know I'd say I speak four or five fluently and uh, struggling with my Vietnamese. My wife is Vietnamese American, and honestly, even if I spoke fifty languages, that one is like very very tough because she she claims that when she's trying to speak French, that every word sounds the same but she must be talking about her own language. <laughs> but it's true, that, it's true that French is a difficult language, yeah. not, not necessarily to speak, but to write. So we have a lot of homophones. Words 
that sound identical but are spelled differently. Right. Give me one example. Okay. Cent. 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 C E N T means one hundred. Okay. Cent. S A N G means blood. Oh yeah. Cent. S A N S means without. Right. Cent. S apostrophe E N means to go somewhere, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they're pronounced 100% identical. The only way you can tell the difference is by context yep. or when you actually see them written and you know what the difference of the meaning is. That's incredible. Let's keep going. I would love to learn more about your grandmother, but I, what a phenomenal story that is. Let's go uh, move forward, though, because you're growing up in France speaking four languages. Tell me uh, about your teenage years. Move forward for us a little bit. Uh, teenage years, spent them in France. Uh, good student. Uh, fascinated by a lot of things. Uh, fascinated by uh, martial arts, hmm. uh, in particular kickboxing. Uh, also fascinated by still languages, literature, and I'd say early early inkling towards business, but not as pronounced by any shot as uh, later in my teens, early in my 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, then I went through the military school in France that was the equivalent of West Point in the US. And coming out of that school, uh, I had a very bad experience coming out of that school, which soured me for many, many years, for about 10 years. I usually don't like to talk about it, but Let's just sum it up by saying I got royally screwed. <laughs> There's no better, no better way to put it. And I just say, screw this, I'm out of here. And uh, my strength coach at that point in time, my kickboxing strength coach was an American living in Las Vegas. He said, why don't you come over here for a couple of weeks and think about what you're going to be doing next. And that couple of weeks quickly turned into eight years. That's how you got to the U.S. Okay, very interesting. So you got out of the military, bad attitude, not happy. And how did you connect with someone in Vegas to be your coach back then? So he, he was, I was working out at a gym in Germany, in Kiel, Germany, right across the Rhine River from Strasbourg. And uh, he was an American athlete working out in there, a uh, strength coach. We hit it off really, really fast, became very close friends. He wanted to go back home and he said, why don't you come with me? I said, sure, come along. And that's how things took a life. Without him, I would have never made it to the U.S. Before we jump into the U.S., you made a comment when you wrote to me about Jules Verne. Where did that, how did that play into things in your future? That yeah, so that is, uh, besides my grandmother, that's probably the writer that really marked me the most uh, because I was a voracious reader starting at age five or six. Uh, when I say voracious, there would be days where I would read a 500-page book, no problem, like 12 hours in a row. And Jules Verne was absolutely my favorite writer uh, as a preteen and during my teen years because I realized that growing up in a very small village in northeast of France, 400 souls, mm -hmm. that everything you set your mind to is possible. So I was a very early dreamer 
living through the lens of a, one of the most incredible visionaries that we've ever known. If you've read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, clearly he, quote unquote, invented the submarine 100 years before the first, the first submarine, mm -hmm. uh, a voyage to the moon, the rocket to the moon, what Tesla, right? He's the precursor of Tesla or anything like that. Uh, the voyage inside the body, same thing, nanotechnology, like 150 years before the first nanobot was ever devised. And that for me was extremely inspirational, right? It was more a dream initially, but I realized that as time was going by, that a lot of these quote unquote fantasies, oh, thank you, there's my, uh, one of my idols on screen. Uh, a lot of these fantasies were actually becoming reality and that he was a much more of a visionary than Nostradamus, right? So he actually started drawing up physical plants as part of his books, as part of his literary work of how a submarine would actually work with the propeller, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly a lot of it was fantasy. Uh, a lot of it was uh, great character design, right? Which we've all come to know. But for me, this is really what, uh, at a very early age, put me on the path to become to becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, by saying, "Look, whenever people tell you you cannot do it, that's probably the biggest motivation that will tell you absolutely this can be done, and I will prove it to you." I love that. I love that. I'm so glad that I asked you that question. Um, so now you're on your way to Vegas. Let's talk about, was there a culture shock? And in, your mom didn't speak English, you said. So was English one of the four languages that you grew up speaking or was that learned later? No, no. That was English, was, English and Spanish were learned, the other ones I grew up with. And uh, Vegas culture shock, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so... Let me start with culture shock. So I have okay. not even landed. I've not even landed in Vegas. And the plane is approaching McCarran International Airport. And I'm looking out the window. Well, I see a bunch of deserts. And then I see nothing but blue. I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on here? Everybody's got a pool in the middle of the desert. Right. It was an absolute shock to me, right? And then I found out the golf, saw golf courses in the middle of the desert. I'm like, what is going on? This is really, really odd. And then really, the biggest shocker in terms of culture shock, I had about a week after I went, I was living with my strength coach in, in his house. And I threw out the trash. And then I saw the neighbor who I just met a couple of days before, his trash can completely overflown. And the trash can is about four or five times the size of what we have in France. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just curious. I lift up the lid and I see a Barbie doll. So I'm like, wow. So I take out the Barbie doll. I'm like, why did they throw this away? I mean, it still looks good, right? So at least even if it doesn't work, a kid could still be playing with it. And I turned around. It had a little vice. I turn it on. It starts talking to me. So either the kid was bored with it and just decided to throw it out. I was like, this would never happen in France. At least we would pass it on. I was the youngest of three boys. Everything was passed on to me, right? If you don't pass, if you don't have any additional children, you can probably find a neighbor or bring it to Salvation Army or whatever and pass that on to someone. But I was absolutely in shock. Number one, by the size of the trash can, the amount of trash being created. And number two, what was in that trash can, including a perfectly functional toy that another kid could have used and be very happy with. So culture shock obviously didn't end there, right? I mean, uh, 
<laughs> it went way beyond that when people actually started showing me around town. Yeah. But I mean, I was, I, I think I rewired my brain within a, a week's time uh, and, and seeing things that I'd never thought would be possible. But I also remember in those times, because now we're talking 1993, people telling me, oh my God, you wouldn't believe how Vegas has grown. It now has 350,000 people, right? Where is this ever going to end, right? We're already building beyond Sahara and Decatur on the west side, the cross streets. Well, if you're looking at the map today, Sahara and Decatur, it's smack dab in the middle of Vegas, Yeah. right? It's stretched out. I remember properties popping up like mushrooms, like literally overnight, like it had just rained and now you got... <laughs> I used to live for a year for a couple of years at 8450 West Charleston. I, these memories are coming back to me. And that was the very, very fringe of Las Vegas. Now that street goes on for another five or six miles, right? It's just unbelievable how the town has exploded. But yeah, most definitely culture shock. And in hindsight, still some culture shock. I had a foreign exchange student from Germany. Uh, she's one of my daughters and she came to us. I lived in Alaska at the time. So not even like Vegas. We It wasn't even a city like Vegas. Alaska didn't have the same amenities that someplace like that would have. And when she came from Aachen, Germany, and we went to the store to get her shampoo and what kind of cereal do you want to get? And she nearly was in tears in the aisle because she she had never seen so many choices. And I was, yeah, you get, I mean, so yeah, I watched her process that. Uh, that reminds me of my first trip to Baskin Robbins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So growing up in France, we had the choice between yes, ice cream or no ice cream. <laughs> right. You can, you can have any flavor of ice cream as long as it's vanilla or chocolate. Uh, right. Yeah. That, that's what I grew up with. And all of a sudden, somebody somebody takes me to Baskin Robbins, thirty one flavors or whatever the heck it is. And I'm like, how do you even do that? Yeah. Like, how do you even make up those flavors? I didn't even know what those flavors were, right? And uh, would you like to try some, sir? Yeah, I'll try a little bit of everything because I don't know them, right? <laughs> That's pretty much what it was. Give me that little spatula, you know. I'll try thirty one of them, and I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> and they actually did it. The trash can, though, is the biggest thing that we have so much more excess that we're throwing out, regardless of whether it's perfectly good toys or what are we producing in trash that you guys just did not produce in trash in France? I think overall in size, I think the biggest shocker would be to see, you know, everybody knows that if you're using big plates, dinner plates, you end up eating more. Yeah. So if you go to see a if you go see a dietitian, the first thing you would tell you is to take smaller plates because you'll force yourself to eat less. Mm -hmm. If you have a smaller trash can, subconsciously you're going to produce less trash. If you're giving a massive trash can, a big size, you're just not going to care. You know, I got plenty of room; it's just going to fly out. So that's in general, I think, what you see. Then I think that. The main difference is in conspicuous consumption, right? I think the biggest, and obviously a lot of big parts of Western Europe are Americanized and behaving no different than in the US. Let's just be clear on that. But I say overall, 
the European consumer is more aware of two things. Number one, the cost benefit of what he's buying. And number two, the environmental impact of the afterlife of what he is buying, knowing that eventually it's going to end up in the landfill. So big shocker with regards to that. When I came to, especially in the 90s, mid 90s, were the late night infomercials oh, on American yeah. TV, mm-hmm. which you don't find in France. They're almost almost impossible to find. And then I remember Tiger Jim this or whatever the brand name were. And then what was really interesting about those commercials is they would show you how neatly that piece of equipment would fold up together and you could slide it under the bed because that's where it's going to end up. And at one point you're going to say, what the heck is this thing doing under my bed? And you're going to throw it out. Right? Right. So I think I'm a marketer by trade. So I know the impact of marketing. For those of you who are on Facebook, you've read about the nefarious effect of social media. You, you are the product, right? Mm-hmm. You are being milked. Just because the service is free doesn't mean that there is no money being made on your behalf with your information being resold to thousands of customers, right? right? Which will change, in my opinion, absolutely the legislation will change. It's gonna, it's already starting that these companies will no longer be able to get away with what they're doing because they're reformatting our mind and not necessarily for the better, but most importantly, they're highly aware of what they're doing and they're highly incentivizing that to happen at scale, mm-hmm. right? Because the more you click, the more you engage with a piece of content, the more advertising dollars are being generated for everybody involved. It right. keeps the wheels turning. But what it does to our brains, we've never witnessed before because this magic device that we call a smartphone has become an extension of our brain. And the next step is we're gonna bypass the device itself and if you look at Neuralink, Elon Musk's new project, we actually will connect to the cloud, to the internet, directly with our frontal neocortex, if we want to, right? So, sounds scary, sounds science fiction-like, but look, about five, six years ago, we started talking about drone deliveries, and everybody was, I remember the 2020 segment, you may remember it as well. They had Jeff Bezos on an interview, And they were talking about Amazon willing in the near future to deliver packages via drones. And when that segment aired, Amazon already had some initial approvals, regulatory approvals to do it. Mm -hmm. They had already proven the safety, the technology, et cetera, et cetera. And today it's almost commonplace. We all know it's coming, right? right? The Hyperloop, Elon Musk's Hyperloop, which tests are being done between Los Angeles and Las Vegas and will propulse you from Los Angeles to Las Vegas in 30 minutes. Uh, People in Las Vegas will be pretty happy about that, right? No longer a four and a half hour car ride or stuck in TSA and with social distancing and everything, right? You just jump into your pod and off you go to Vegas. You know, you lose your paycheck and you come back home broke. Yippee hooray, right? Right, it's changing a lot. I, I want to go back to 93. You got to, you, now I understand how you came here. You had a place to stay. Oh, great. We have the N1 implant right there. That's crazy. That's it. That's crazy. Um, and you had about $200 to your name. So I yeah. want to take this next 
15 minutes and go from there to where you are now with Unicorn, which is a pretty monumental jump. And you said there were more failures than successes, but tell me how you use that $200 and what you did with it and how that connects back to Unicorn being back in France now. Yeah, so interesting story there. Uh, I actually ran out of money when I had my one of my most successful ventures. And when you grow very fast, yeah. you have to invest heavily. And I didn't even pay attention. At one point in time, I was running out of money. I remember one day in Huntington Beach, California, scrounging for change in my right pocket. I remember like, like putting my hand in that pocket right now as it happened. That was in 1998. My, I was with my daughter, was two years old at that time. And I wanted to buy a burrito and didn't find enough quarters in my pocket to buy a burrito. And that was a real wake-up call. Not for me. I could say, look, I can, the term intermittent fasting, I think, didn't exist back then, but I could, <laughs> I, prob I probably did that. So, <laughs> but I didn't want my two-year-old daughter to intermittent fast, right? Yeah, right. And then I remember, okay, let's go back. My office was in North Hollywood. And I remember one Friday afternoon, I'm sitting there. I'm like, holy cow, we're growing so fast. I ran out of money because of our growth rate. And today I'm not gonna be able to make full payroll for the first time. Right. And then I'm making some calculations. Clearly I'm the first one not getting paid, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden I see my secretary waving for me to pick up the phone because my phone wasn't silent. Pick up the phone and the other person on the other line says, I'm such and such, I'm calling you because I wanna buy your company. I was like, uh, sorry, sir. Uh, I'm not sure where you learned that my company is for sale. Uh, it's not for sale. And he goes, everyone is for sale at the right price. I'm like, that may be true, but I'm still not selling. I said, I he goes, I understand. How about I send my driver up to your office in North Hollywood? He knew exactly where I was. And he can bring you down to my office and we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, uh, sir, I'm an adult. I have my own car. I don't need a driver. You tell me where you are. It's Friday afternoon in Los Angeles. It's going to take me a little while to get to you, but I'm willing to hear you out. He said, no worries. I'm here at, you know, at least 8 or 9 p.m. And it was 3 in the afternoon. So I figured, giving that five, six hours, I could make it from North Hollywood to the South Bay. Yeah. So got in the car. I got there about an hour and 45 minutes later. And now we're talking. He says the same thing. Everybody's for sale at the right price. And I said, look, I'm not selling, but let me know. If there is any synergies, maybe you can become a client of what we're doing. Clearly, you're interested in what we have to offer. And all of a sudden, he reaches into a drawer. I can do it right now because I have one next to me. Opens up a drawer, pulls out a piece of paper, and puts it in front of me. And I realize it's a check. So he goes, how about you take this check home, deposit it, and think about it over the weekend. And we talk early next week. And I remember like glancing sideways with my eyes and looking at the check and like, and there was a big, big figure on there. I, I look at him, I said, I tell you what, grab the check, you got a deal. <laughs> so I rushed to California Federal Bank, not to name the bank, it doesn't exist anymore today anyway, just to make it before closure so they could make payroll because I was short on payroll. And I remember because it was a large check, 
the teller looked at this check and looked at me. I was a 20, 20 or something, and like rolling her eyes. I'm like, this must be a fake check or something. Then she goes back to talk to her manager. And now I see the two of them chatting amongst themselves and staring me down. And all of a sudden, the bank manager comes up and goes, I'm sorry, sir, I cannot clear this entire amount today. I'm like, no worries. <laughs> it doesn't have to clear all today. Uh, he goes, how, how much do you need? I said, how about, can you clear 10, 15, 20,000? And he said, yeah, that's no problem. So he cleared that. I, I went home, made payroll. Ultimately, we sold the company to that, uh, to that man, to that, to that company. We were acquired. Wow. And then you've moved on since then. What's that journey been like from that company to Unicorn now? So I've had the number of hits and misses uh on, on on the course but with the obviously the hits are always a rare rarer than the misses right and on that note uh i have my own philosophy of failure which i learned very very early on basically any failure is a stepping stone that gets you one step closer to a success and that's proven by science in my case back when i started in the space in the digital marketing space in 1993, 1994, initially we were selling websites in the US to companies who did not know what a website was. Mm -hmm. It was like selling ice to Eskimos, right? Because the, inf the, inf the internet was called the information superhighway at that time, if you remember, right? And we were calling up people, I was calling up people, pitching them on websites. What's a website? I don't need that, goodbye, right? One example. For those of them, uh, I heard vaguely something about this. Why would that serve me? Blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, I kept the cheat sheet and basically would mark down, okay, voicemail, no, 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 maybe, maybe, no, 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 yes. And my own formula is the formula of one out of 36. And that stuck with me for, since then. It took me 35 no's or maybes to get to a yes. Now that I had that formula, I know exactly how many dials and how many contacts I needed to make to have a success. Mm -hmm. But it's only by way of those failures that I would get to the success. If I didn't dial those numbers and fail many, many times over, I would never get to the next success, right? right? So my philosophy and everything we're building at Unicorn is predicated upon minimizing failure and maximizing success. Since we all know that we're going to be failing repeatedly, the idea is to actually provoke that failure by trial and error, mm. fail as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible, which with today's tools. So for example, if you're a marketer and you're doing a Facebook ad campaign, a Google ad campaign, you can quickly iterate, know what doesn't work, what works, mm -hmm. eliminate the losers, those are failures, and focus your budget on the winners because those will get you closer to your success, right? So for those of you who want to be entrepreneurs who have failed once, twice, three times, don't give up, right? You've basically given up, for many of you, one step before the success. In order to provoke success, you have to be willing to put up with the failures and live through them. So we've done that, and as a result, you have today unicorn, and where Unicorn is a very, very heavy dose of consulting, mm -hmm. where we actually teach some of these core philosophies, because if you're a young entrepreneur and you don't have to thick skin, many of them don't, 
Yeah. If I just let you go by your wayside and do what you will be doing on your own, you may fail very, very quickly and never get up again. But if someone stands next to you, a mentor, and says, you know, I've been there and done that, you got to fall 35 more times before you can actually have the win. Mm -hmm. They may challenge me and say, wow, really? Or I'm not willing to put up with that. Then, okay, then you're not made up to be an entrepreneur, right? Or the guy would say, oh, I didn't know that. So let me go back to work. Let me fail 35 more times so I can actually get the success. And I've actually had those experiences, right? So it's very important for any entrepreneur to know what they're getting themselves into because entrepreneurs are outliers. Not everybody's made out to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And the big mirage that we grew up with is that it's become so easy and so cheap today to become an entrepreneur that everybody thinks they're cut out for it. Mm -hmm. When I started in the tech space, if I remember 1998, Mm -hmm. My average bandwidth bill per month was $8,000 US, and I was using 800 times less bandwidth than I'm using today, and I'm paying nothing for it today. If you had an e-commerce website in the late 90s, you needed an Oracle server license, right? SQL. My SQL didn't even exist or were just in its infancy. In order to buy one instance of an Oracle server license, it put you back $32,000 US. Bottom line, if you didn't raise at least a quarter or a half million dollars, you had no shot, no reason to be in business. So it was a lot more difficult. The obstacle, the, the bar was set so high at that point in time. And those today, it's completely demonetized and yep. democratized. Anybody can do it from their smartphone in their pajamas, right? <laughs> but that doesn't mean you should be doing it, okay? Because... What's happening as a result of this rapid democratization and demonetization is that everyone can compete. So what really matters today is your ability to differentiate yourself from the other startup and not start a business for the sake of starting one. If you go back, Jeff Bezos has a very, 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 very important line for entrepreneurs that basically says that you should not be focusing on the future and on, on trying to come up with a crystal ball and guessing what's going to be the next big thing. Don't focus on what's changing because it's changing too fast. Focus on what is not changing and build a business on that. So what's not changing? Well, tomorrow we're going to wake up and probably going to eat right at some point during the day, we're going to take a shower. We're going to clothe ourselves. We're going to educate ourselves. We're going to use all these different products and services. Find out a better way of delivering those products and services to your intended audience. And then also, because unicorn means startup worth a billion or more, right? If you really want to be a billionaire, very simple rule, help a billion people. Focus on the net effect on your impact of helping people and the rest will fall by the, you know, will just happen magically by on its own. Early in my career, because I had no choice, I always focused on the money because without that, I couldn't make ends meet. So I had no choice. But today, the first thing I'm focusing on is building a great startup, building a great product that actually answers a dire need in the marketplace, help as many people as possible right? Make their life easier, make their life simpler. There are so many friction points that you can come up with if you really think about how we're leading our lives. People don't like friction. 
people like the path of least resistance and are willing to pay a price for the path of least resistance. So if you're setting up to do something, try to figure out how you remove some of those obstacles that will smoothen the customer's journey and you will have a business model that will fall into your lap. Dom, how do people find you? Do you have an ideal client? But what's the, first, what's the easiest way for people to find you? Easiest way for, for anybody to come to me, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Dom Einhorn, D-O-M, as in Mary, Einhorn, E-I-N-H-O-R-N. I'm the only Dom Einhorn on LinkedIn, as far as I know. Same on Facebook. Our website is Unicorn Incubator. That's unicorn with a Q, mm -hmm. incubator.com. Uh, my personal email is dom at the unicorninkubator.com. Uh, we mentioned the Startup Super Cup. You can visit that as well. It's startupsupercup.com. Uh, most of the people that come and work with us are purely by referral. We have a very strong network of, uh, of investors, angel investors, and startups. We're very much uh, entrenched in the local startup ecosystem. Uh, we work uh, at a high level with the region, southwest region of France. Uh, matter of fact, a couple of days ago, I trained a whole bunch of French startups that were pitching at the first digital edition of CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which, as you know, is held in Vegas every year. This year was the first time it was not a physical event. It was dematerialized. It was a, it was a virtual event. Uh, but back in the days, I, I did, I think, 12 or, 15, 12 or 14 CESs. Uh, it's an absolute madhouse in Vegas for uh you know three days three four or five days straight but uh yeah anybody feel free to reach out um i live online pretty much uh i'm very quick to respond dom thank you so much for being on and sharing your story i appreciate you i thank you so much for having me on